Some of you are going to find this a bit incredulous, but here's something that federal, state, and local governments all tell us to do that we should actually listen to. Eat more fruits and vegetables. You've heard about the health benefits of increasing plant-based nutrients into your diet, but how can you easily consume all the fruits and veggies needed? Well, it's easy. By adding Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity into your meals. Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity is a power blend that has 31 fruits and vegetables in every scoop. Organic vegetables, super greens, super fruits, and super sprouts. It is fortified with essential vitamins plus an immunity boost. And right now, you can get a free two-week supply of Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity by just paying $8.95 for the shipping and handling. And not only that, you'll also get a free frother to quickly whip up your healthy and nutritious grown American drink. Go to grownamericansuperfood.com forward slash John and order today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. Welcome back to Tell Me Everything with John Fugelsang. I'm your guest host, Max Burns, sitting in for John this week. And let me tell you guys the way that the media has often failed in its job of core public service journalism. I mean, the D.C. Beltway media, I think we can all agree, is something of a mess. Whether they're downplaying Joe Biden's successes on the economy and prescription drugs, or focusing on insider gossip and Hunter Biden scandals, instead of investigative journalism that actually makes our government work better, a lot of Americans are losing faith in the big news outlets to get them the information they need. My guest tonight is a big reason why I still have faith in Washington, even seven years after I gave up and ran away. Brian Karam has been a tireless advocate for the truth as a White House columnist, host of the Just Ask the Question podcast. He's a best-selling true crime author, a former correspondent for America's Most Wanted. And Brian is truly committed to the values of journalism. He spent time in jail for refusing to reveal the identity of a confidential source back in 1992. Brian, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Wow, I got to get you to write my bio. That was pretty good. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's I, you you did the time, man. It's it's all for you. Now, I was I was talking before the break about this tidal wave of rhetoric from the GOP that's basically urging their supporters into violence if Trump goes on trial. Everything from from raiding the jail, as one of them said, and setting him free to firing Fonnie Willis to just declaring civil war. Yet it, it almost feels like the media doesn't want to talk about that for fear of legitimizing it. Am I overinflating? Am I too worried about this? Yeah, I think we're all a little too worried about it. We live in a very violent society. We have what uh, on average this year, two mass uh, shootings a day of uh, okay. every day of this year. So yeah, there's probably going to be some violence, but nothing that we ha haven't already seen. And as far as the mainstream media, I don't like that term. I'd rather use the term corporate media because you're mainstream. Everyone's I don't know what mainstream is. I do know what corporate media is. And there's fewer and fewer companies that own more and more 
of of the media outlets. And that's a, a big problem. And we need to break up media monopolies. But it it's it there's two things at, at, at play here with the press. One, we're not exper- as experienced as we used to be. We all know there's no Walter Cronkites anymore. There's no, you know, uh, Sam Donaldson's anymore. Hell, there's, you know, there's no one at the AP or the New York Times. They don't look like they used to. That's because with the downsizing uh, and the constriction in the media, we've gone to pay less and less for the people who experienced. And these people that are covering the press, and I'm telling you, this is the youngest press corps I've seen in the White House in, in all my time there since Reagan. There are very few people that have a great deal of experience there. Many of them have none and have come to the White House or very limited and have come to the White House and think that they're part of the in crowd baby. And so the problem you have is that they really don't know what the job they're supposed to do. And they're, they don't want to be seen as partisan unless they are partisan and then they don't care. But if, if you want to be part of what we believe is the traditional press, you want to try to be even handed. That's you know. So if we call Trump a liar, does that mean we're that it looks like we're being partisan? No. Donald Trump is a liar. Call it straight. Donald Trump is a seditionist. Call it that. There are plenty of of, uh, and I will give every due consideration and uh, criticism that the Biden administration has earned. Chief of which is that it is a horrible communication staff, one of the worst I've ever worked with, and Joe Biden is far better. Uh, being out in front of the public, but they don't put him out in front of the public. That's part of the problem. But he's not a seditionist. He 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 understands the Constitution. And you're right, he's done some good things. But we don't hear about him. And it's not only the press's fault, but it's also the fault of the administration for not repeating itself incessantly like Donald Trump. And we get told, well, you, you know, we've we've said it once. That's all it should take. Well, folks, if you've watched anything over the last six years, you understand that Donald Trump will suck up every molecule of oxygen in the room unless you do. So if you're not out trumpeting what you've done day in and day out, yeah, you're going to hear more Donald Trump than you want to hear. I I personally don't ever want to hear the guy's name again. I hope he gets convicted. I hope that he's sentenced. I, I would. My dream is that he's sentenced to prison and serves his time in Alcatraz. We rename it Mar-a-Lago West. We keep one person there. We charge $20 for people to come and see him and watch the the large orange ape toss his feces at the cell window. And then, you know, they condemn all of the Trump property and turn it into housing for the homeless. And then I'd be happy. I think you just made a proposal that's going to pay off the national debt. I mean, going to pay prisoner Trump. So you make a great point. I mean, the, the press corps is so young now, and that's true in the States, too. I mean, we've seen local journalism dying off, and now it's really young cub reporters right out of school that don't have a lot of experience. And in Washington, people who are just building relationships, they're really hesitant to burn access, and it gives these senators a free hand. A lot of what I've seen that, that frightens me is the way a lot of journalists at these major outlets treat politicians like they're friends and they're going to their parties and they're having lunch with them and, and talking casual. And then you don't see that same hard hitting expose. It's always almost always independent journalists on Twitter that are breaking those huge stories. And is there a way around? I mean, is this corporate consolidation of journalism just a fait accompli or is there a way we can get back to a more vibrant and healthier press? 
Well, someone should write a book about this. Oh, I have. It's called Free the Press, wherever fine books are sold. <laughs> and what you need to do is what I propose in the book. And, and the Biden administration has talked about busting up monopolies in other industries, right? There's you know, there's too many monopolies in the pharmaceutical industry. And well, look, there's too many in, in the insurance industry, in the banking industry. The monopolies in the uh, media industry have to be broken up. I would. I have asked for a blue ribbon commission to study how to do it and to make sure that we put more reporters in the field. There are twice the number of people on this earth today as on the day that I was born, and probably a quarter a number of reporters. That's a problem. And there are vast media deserts all across this country where there are no local journalism. And by the way, that's where yep. most national stories start with local journalists and building a community. We're so divisive. We don't build communities anymore. And community journalism is where you do it. You may think differently about, you know, Republican or Democrat, but everybody wants a paved road. They want the, you know, schools to work, the, you know, the police department not to, you know, uh, be like daily cops. They, you know, they they want to make sure that hospitals work, schools, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's where you get all that reporting, you know, clean water. You get all that reporting at a local level. And we there are places where there's no local reporting anymore. For example, where I live in Montgomery County, Maryland, a county of a million people adjacent to the District of Columbia. When I first moved there, there were two daily newspapers, two weekly newspapers, three radio stations that all covered news. Today, the two weeklies are gone. The daily is gone. There's one reporter for the Washington Post that covers a county that now has more than 1.1 million people. We don't cover city council meetings there. We don't cover school board meetings there, library meetings, county meetings, all of those that are no reporters there. How do you cover government if you're not there? That's the problem. And that, that really is the root of it. I mean, so much of what we've seen with these extreme anti-abortion laws, with a lot of the anti-trans hate that's risen up without a lot of opposition until it reaches the governor and is signed and people learn about it, is just the fact that there are no local reporters covering this stuff. And we've seen that if you allow elected officials of any party, but certainly right now more on the Republican side, this free reign to do this without any oversight or any accountability, they will use that power to the maximum. And that's rarely going to represent the constituents they serve. Yeah. You know, fascism and despotism, they all thrive in the dark. They're like mushrooms and they feed on, you know, feces and thrive in the dark. And that's a lot of, you know, come on, some of these people that are in government, they need to get a real job. <laughs> I, I hate when they tell me, you know, hey, we're your leaders. I'm sorry. My taxes pay your salary. Where I live, if I'm paying your salary, that means I'm the boss. So shut up and do what we ask instead of treating us as if, you know, there are members of Congress that treat their constituents as if they are fans. And and it's yep. a WWE. It's, a, it's turned from public service to public performance for these uh, congressional and state and local reps. And that's not the way it should be. And you can't hold them accountable if you're not there to hold them accountable. And that's what traditionally journalists did, speaking yep. truth to power. We're going to take a quick break. This is Sirius XM Progress, and you're listening to Tell Me Everything. Stick around. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. 
I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. If you're just joining us, this is Tell Me Everything. I'm chatting with White House columnist extraordinaire Brian Karam about all the big breaking stories today and the state of journalism in this country. Now, I want to be fair because I could talk all night about this and how terrible Republicans (laughs) have been, but not every Republican is shutting up so easily. We saw yesterday former Georgia Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan saying Trump has the moral compass of an axe murderer. And I know you've you've said possibly more uncharitable terms for this same thing. (laughs) Does any of this Republican outrage move the needle with vote Republicans who are outside this MAGA cult at all? Yeah, and it will move the needle uh, once Donald Trump is gone and Donald Trump is going to be gone. I do not believe that he will be on the ballot in 2024. In fact, by this time next year, I think he'll be facing prison. And he has you know, too many court appearances to run an effective campaign in the first Republican debates showed that the craziness can continue. Someone will fill his clown shoes if he's not there. And his far right-wing agenda still exists without him. In some ways, Donald Trump is irrelevant to the very Republican Party he has built. So I firmly believe that uh, the traction that that is given by these people will continue. And I, I do believe that there's going to be a backlash against Donald Trump coming sooner rather than later. And that's that's the challenge with these sort of authoritarian, autocratic strongmen is that, that it's hard to tell when it comes, but it comes fast and furious when it does, and they fall quickly. And I, I think we'll see something like that. But while Trump is out, he's basically on air, pledging with Tucker Carlson to fill any second Another term he moron. gets. Yeah, who's, who's doing great on Twitter. It, he's pledging to fill any second term he gets basically with the prosecution of his political enemies. I want to play a clip here of Trump and Glenn Beck. Do you regret not locking her up? And if you're president again, will you lock people up? Well, I'll give you an example. Uh, The answer is you have no choice because they're doing it to us. I always had such great respect for the office of the president, the presidency. And uh, but the office of the president and I never hit Biden as hard as I could have. And then I heard he was trying to indict me and it was him that was doing it. You know, I don't think he's sharp enough to think about much. I mean, Trump is basically saying, well, what can you do? You got no choice but to lock up all the Democrats because they hate America. I mean, what even if he goes to prison, this kind of rhetoric is going to get picked up by a Vivek Ramaswamy or a Ron DeSantis. What do you make of it? What is the long term way to prevent this kind of corrosion from actually making its way into the Justice Department? Education would be nice. <laughs> See, you know, Thomas Jefferson favored uh, education. Most of our founding fathers believed in education. Uh, it's the Ron DeSantis uh, wing of the Republican Party and the Donald Trump 
wing of the Republican Party that doesn't want us that much educated because it's far easier to rule over people with their emotions. He plays to fear. He, He gives people a voice that felt that they had been isolated in America. And for good cause, racism, misogyny, uh, fascism, all of those things deserve to be cornered. But you have to educate and teach people how to think so they do not fall victims to it. And that's what is missing in today's society. And that's partly because of a lack of decent journalism and partly because of the way we spend money in education. And also, you know, you could even go back to parenting if you want to find root causes. But the bottom line is, You're not going to change any of this until you educate people better. And Donald Trump speaking, you know, he's flown by the seat of his pants. I'd say skid marks since, you know, he's he crawled out of the womb. He's used to getting what he wants. He's a he is a violent little uh, toddler who throws temper tantrums. He doesn't have the morality of an axe murderer. Donald Trump has no morality. He, If you've ever seen the, the show Supernatural, he's one of the minor demons that float around with yellow eyes threatening to take people's soul. He's, he's actually a soulless human being. He is probably one of the, he, he gives people the right and the ability to, who, who are isolated, to come together and think that they have a just cause. He allows people to play to the worst versions of themselves, and he encourages it. Today, putting out a video saying, we won't comply if, if we go back to mass mandates because of COVID. Well, hell, he's the guy who first who first mandated them. He's so full of it, it's it's ridiculous. But people fall for it because they go, you know, I, I you know, he's he he represents me. Nobody ever listened to me before. And instead of trying to change these people's minds, which you're never going to do with logic. You've got to do with emotion. If you're if you're going to appeal to these people to change and to think critically, Donald Trump isn't the guy to do it. So it's going to continue until we get, you know, the rest of the world's got to get over being butt sore about the fact that we've got a lot of ignoramuses in this country and we have to start educating them. And I think the, the education is so key. And you you hit on a point that I've tried to make that I think the media largely has has put forward this idea that the GOP is a party that has no platform and no message and is just chaos all the time. But there is a clear platform. I mean, we see it in Ron DeSantis. It's eliminate journalism first and then lock down your schools, strip out libraries of things that are are what one Republican called uh, inappropriate knowledge, and then change your schools so that it's literally criminalizing teaching things like black history, teaching things that show an accurate portrayal of where this has led before and where it leads again. I mean, and and it does seem like Democrats and Joe Biden are not pushing hard enough on this idea that they, they're not just coming for your schools. They've already come for the schools. And in several states, they've already won. I mean, there's nothing legally that, that Democrats in Florida are able to do at this point to push back on what DeSantis has done. And I, and I think, do you see a sense of urgency there in the party and in the people you speak to about tackling this issue? I've seen this sense of urgency for a while. It's trying to get other people to understand it, but we're too busy being soccer moms and soccer dads, paying our bills, being caught up in daily life. Hell, in a country where you can, where 50% voter turnout is considered good, you've got a problem. You, you need to have 75, 80% minimum because if you only have, do the math, which by the way, many Americans aren't good at, look, if you do the math and you only have 50% turnout, All you need is 25% of the vote, a quarter of the vote 
to get some plus one to get someone into office. So minority, it's it's despotism by the minority against the majority. That's where you have a problem. The minority shouldn't be ruling. This is this is terrorism, and you've got to end it. And the only way to end it is by getting involved, people. You have to vote. You have to volunteer to help. You have to take your government back. It's the government of, by, and for the people, but it's not that way if you don't vote. The simplest thing to do is to cast a ballot, a knowledgeable ballot in your local, state, and federal elections. You've got to do it. And 2024, look, right now, this is the last chance. This is, you know, in my lifetime, probably, this is going to be the last chance to hold those who have a lot of money and power accountable for what they do. If we fail to hold Donald Trump accountable for what he's done to this country now, for the rest of my life, we will not be able to hold the rich and powerful accountable for any crimes that they commit, and our democracy is finished. It's that simple. I can't state it in starker terms. I can't be more blunt. I can't be more honest. Get your fat, flaccid butts up off the couch and vote. It's something that our founders would agree with as well. I mean, in a country that bases itself on an educated electorate as the foundation of everything, the key part there is is educated and electorate, getting out and actually doing something. People, I think, are shocked when they see that a lot of these school board races where MAGA candidates have won and have now stripped books out of their libraries were won. In some cases, there were 300 total votes cast in entire counties. And it really is just in some cases, races where there was no opposition at all because people just never signed up to run. Tyranny of the minority. And and look, let's be honest, Max, you know, there has never been, when are book burners ever been on the right side of history? Never. You know, if you're going to tell me you're going to, I remember one time this was back in the eighties covering a, a rally in, in Kentucky, right? It was Pete, it was the parents against porn <laughs> they called themselves PAP. And <laughs> so the PAP came out and smeared us uh, and started talking about how they gave us a list, a bunch of reporters. We were at the state Capitol and they handed us a list of books and movies that we should burn or should be banned. And I said, the first question I ask is, how did you determine these were bad? And they said, well, we read the books and we saw the movies, the members of the uh, of our uh, leadership. You know, uh, the executive council read the book, saw the movies and decided they were, you know, should be burned or banned. I said, well, what's the difference between you watching and reading them and me watching and reading them? Well, we did it to help you. I go, I don't want your help. I don't care what you think should be burned or banned. That's my decision. And every time somebody says we should burn or ban a book, I make sure I read the damn thing or watch the daggone movie just to see what it is that people are so incensed about. And most of the time it's garbage. There's not, I've never seen a book that should be banned. You should not ban thought. I don't care what it says. I disagree with what you say, Well, but we'll defend to death your right to say it. Even if it's the most disgusting, hateful thing, I want to know what other people are thinking. I need to know what other people are thinking so that I can make informed decisions about my life. And I do not care for those who want to burn, ban books or movies. It's just garbage. I can't say it any better than that. Brian, in the couple seconds we have left before the break, can you let our listeners know where they can find you, how they can support the really critical work that you're doing? 
Well, we have Patreon subscribers. You can see us. It's just ask the question is the podcast at just ask the question.com and wherever fine podcasts are sold. The name of the book is called Free the Press. Again, it's in its third printing, wherever fine books are sold. And every Thursday, I have a column in Salon, uh, salon.com, and you can read it. And then, of course, on Twitter or X or Exeter or whatever the heck it is these days. At we Brian just call Carroll. it Twitter. Yeah, that's it. It's at Brian Karam on Twitter and at Brian J. Karam on threads. I'm there also. Follow me. Brian, it has been an incredible pleasure to sit down with you and pick your brain about all this stuff. You've been listening to my guest, White House columnist Brian Karam. You're listening to Sirius XM Progress. Stick around. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele Podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real, and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on, because you know I love it when you do. And we are back with more Tell Me Everything. If you're just tuning in, I'm Max Burns, sitting in for the great John Fugelsang. Now, I don't know about you, but it feels a lot like 2016 and 2020 around here lately mainly because Donald Trump's rolling carnival of chaos is sucking the oxygen out of the political world. Flip around cable news and you're more likely to see stories about Trump than anything else. And that's a real shame for democracy, because there's a lot happening in this country that isn't getting talked about, and it could have a massive effect on your day-to-day life. For example, you'd be forgiven for not knowing that gun violence has already killed over 25,000 Americans this year because that certainly hasn't been a banner headline on any of the news outlets. In fact, our media seems to have lost interest in the gun violence epidemic entirely. But that's not the case for my next guest, who wants to get Americans refocused on one of the biggest challenges facing our country, by redefining gun violence as a public health crisis. Congressman Dan Goldman represents New York's 10th Congressional District, and you may know him from his dogged work exposing the GOP's sham Hunter Biden hearings. But Goldman is also a busy guy. He recently partnered with fellow New York Congressman Adriano Espaillat to introduce the gun violence legislation 
that would change how our government thinks about its most intractable problem. And we're really thrilled to have him here with us now. Congressman Goldman, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. Great to be with you, Max. Now, I'm really fascinated here. This legislation you've introduced, help folks understand why you think we should be looking at gun violence from not just a criminal perspective, but a public health perspective. Well, there are a lot of reasons, and and it's largely because the problem continues to escalate and grow. And now we are in a situation where guns kill more children than anything else in our country. Nearly 10 children die every single day from gun violence. Uh, I have uh, school, young school-aged children. My kindergartner last year, as many do around the country, if not all, had to endure active shooter drills. And it's not even clear to me that he fully understands what a gun is. And this is the reality of what we are living in and what every parent is uh, living with right now. And it has gotten to the point where it's not just about, oh, it's uh, uh, mass shootings here and there. We've already had 400 mass shootings, o- over 400 this year alone. There are more than two a day. And so the problem is escalating to the point where it is truly an emergency. And it is a public health emergency because people, and you pointed out 25,000 total, but children in particular are dying every single day. I think that's, that's a great point about the schools. I think I may have been the last generation that didn't have regular active shooter drills. And the things we hear time and again from students is that what sticks out in here isn't that it's preparing you for safety, it's that it's traumatizing kids and they don't even feel safe in their schools. And I can't imagine how that must affect their learning process and how they're developing their brains. That it's it's a every I mean, the studies show that the the trauma not only from you know gun violence. So uh, you're going to have obviously you know you have people who who tragically die from it. But you also have so many other people, friends, family members, uh, you know, fellow students who are traumatized by the impact of it. And so the the impact and the effect of this epidemic is exponential beyond those who are directly affected. You know, when I was in school, we had fire drills and now we have active shooter drills and the difference is not lost on any single parent who now worries about whether not whether their kid is going to make a friend or you know get in a dispute on the playground they're worried whether their child is coming home at the end of the day and the the worst part of course max is it doesn't have to be this way this is not something that we need to accept and the most this is the most frustrating thing that i have uh, felt in congress is that this is this is elective it is not required it is not necessary and yet republicans refuse to discuss the issue of gun violence um notwithstanding the fact that the vast vast majority of americans gun owners democrats republicans want greater protections greater regulations stricter requirements to own a gun. No one is talking about taking anyone's guns away. That's not what this is about. We are just trying to make sure 
that those who are capable of getting a gun uh, do so with the right uh, regulations, just like you would for a driver's license, as one example. And and one would think, maybe naively, that this wouldn't be so partisan an issue. I mean, the fact is, red states, kids in red states are much more likely to be victims of mass shootings than kids in blue states. So this should be an ideal bipartisan issue. And I, as you've said, I mean, it's now the leading cause of death among kids in the country. And we're losing 100 Americans a day to this epidemic. Are you hearing any support at all from your Republican colleagues on this? No, none. Uh, there's zero interest. Uh, I keep bringing up a couple things. I mean, the first is that 91% of Americans believe there should be universal background checks. You find me any issue where 91% of Americans agree, and I, I will you know, take you out to dinner because it just doesn't exist. And yet there's no action on the other side. And one of the things that uh, you, the Republicans have been harping on so much this Congress, and, and I see it in the Homeland Security Committee on which I sit, is this notion of uh, immigration, the open borders, they claim, and how drug cartels are controlling the borders and sending fentanyl and sm smuggling humans and children into the country. Every single time they talk about that, I bring up the fact that these drug cartels are able to wield their power and influence solely because they receive semi-automatic and automatic weapons from American manufacturers, that we are exporting guns to the cartels. And Republicans refuse to even address that. I introduced an amendment in their uh, big legislation on this, and they all voted it down. So they will do anything at this point to protect the gun lobby, and they're choosing the gun lobby over American children. It, it does seem baffling. I mean, we saw in the recent Republican debate that Ron DeSantis proposing abolishing the Department of Education and using the money to essentially invade Mexico because of the threat it poses to Americans, but not a word about the active daily threats Floridian students face from these shooters. There, there doesn't seem to be any real sense that this is a priority for the right. It's not a priority. And, and just that suggestion alone demonstrates a fundamental misunderstanding of what the problem is. The problem is not the Mexican government. The Mexican government is working in conjunction with the American government to try to control the cartels. But they cannot do it alone, and they certainly cannot do it when we are exporting guns that down there. Another hearing I sat in, uh, one of my Republican colleagues listed out or identified four articles over the course of 2023 that described horrific crimes committed by those who came into the country uh, without legal papers. And that's bad. No question about it. But he cited four. And we're talking about two mass shootings by Americans every single day. So if you're going to talk about violent crime, let's talk about the, the vast majority of perpetrators, which are our own citizens, and not try to demonize the few asylum seekers and migrants coming into this country who are, by, by, by the statistics, much, much less violent than Americans 
themselves. So it is constant, constant diversion, deception, deceit, and misinformation uh, that the Republicans are using to protect the gun lobby and to vilify and demonize uh, immigrants trying to come to this country to seek a better life. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Tell Me Everything and my guest, New York Congressman Dan Goldman. We're discussing the congressman's big efforts to put gun violence back on the national agenda. And I'd, I'd actually like to ask about that. I know you have introduced now a big package of legislation that wants to bring effective programs that have worked on the state level up to the federal level. Tell our, our listeners what's in that package. Well, there's a lot in the in the package, and I'm a, a vice chair of the Gun Violence Prevention Task Force, and I'm now heading up um, the Gun Violence Prevention Working Group as part of the Congressional Dads Caucus, focusing this issue on parents and the fear that all parents have, Republicans and Democrats, about their children going to school. But there's a, a large suite of very basic, common sense gun reform, gun violence reform that includes universal background checks, that includes red flag laws, that includes stricter uh, restrictions on ghost guns, that includes raising the age, that includes safe storage to make sure that guns are kept safely away from children, uh, that includes red flag laws, uh, which is another issue that makes absolutely no sense. Um, because if anybody is viewed to be a danger to himself, him or herself or others, they should not be able to access a gun. And I hear from the right all the time, oh, it's a due process, due process argument. That's true. But you're not required to have due process before the gun is taken away. If you have reason to be suspicious that someone may do harm, you can take the gun away and then give the person due process. So these are just basic things that would protect children, that would maintain whatever right to bear arms uh, that individual citizens have. And, and that's the debate for another day. But what's important to understand is none of these pieces of legislation are trying to take away anyone's right to own a gun. It is just making sure that the people who do own guns are not owning assault weapons, are of significant age, maturity and mental stability to do so, and are taking proper care of those guns to ensure that they don't get in the wrong hands. And I think that's a great point. I mean, it almost feels too small to say, I think of this politically, but it's also exceptionally popular. These are all issues Americans support. We saw Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan passed a gun safety package that became immensely popular. And the things we're proposing here are not crazy or they're not. They're certainly not taking guns out of people's hands legally. But for example, last year, a white supremacist walked into a grocery store in Buffalo, New York, and murdered 10 black shoppers and injured three. And we saw Republicans actively downplaying the connection between that gunman's record of violent white supremacist postings online and the violence that resulted. At what, if anything, can we be doing to keep guns out of the hands of people like that? Well, th there should be required reporting um, by schools, by mental health professionals, by parents, by friends, um, that you must report uh, suspicious activity, uh, disturbance, violent uh, threats, 
Uh, we also need the social media companies to be involved and required to report to the authorities uh, if there is any disturbing uh, language or threats or indication of a desire to commit violence. And this goes back to sort of the basic red flag laws, which, again, someone will have due process to be able to make the argument that they're uh, that they're sufficiently competent mentally or otherwise to own a gun. But if there's a any indication that someone should not own a gun, there needs to be a flag that is put in our system that prevents them from buying a gun. And that's why we need universal background checks. That's why we need to make sure that that there's a mandatory three day waiting period to buy a gun. If you are using a gun for a legitimate purpose, self-defense, hunting, uh, or whatever you, you want to, to say about it, there is no reason why you can't wait three days. And the only reason to me, that seems like, oh, I don't want to wait three days is if I want to get this and use it immediately. And if you want to use it immediately, there's some concern about what you're using it for. The other thing about the Buffalo Shooter is I believe he was 18 or just turned 18. And it is uh, it's just too young. Well, I don't understand why you uh, need to wait until you're 21 to drink, but you can buy a gun at 18. Uh, that makes no sense. So raising the age is also a very basic thing. And when you look at all mass shootings, a disproportionate number of the perpetrators are between the ages of 18 and 21. Another very simple fix that has precedent in other areas of regulation in our country uh, that should be uh, should get bipartisan support. But again, you know, we're we are in this uh, la la land where the Republicans do not care about the will of the voters as much as they care about the will of their special interests. It all seems so common sense, which I think explains why Republicans don't understand it. And speaking of that, I want to switch gears just a little bit because it's only August, but Congress is already gearing up for a possible government shutdown at the end of the year. We saw the Freedom Caucus is essentially holding the government hostage, telling Kevin McCarthy it wants the House to end support for Ukraine to stop what they call wokeness at the Pentagon. What does all this say to you about Kevin McCarthy's Republicans and his control over his own party? You know, it's interesting, Max. Uh, I, I hear all the time from people uh, who probably don't pay very close attention to politics, but they tell me all the time, oh, you know, it's it's the extremes on both sides that are the problem. And I find that to show a fundamental misunderstanding of what is going on. The extreme right has captured Kevin McCarthy and the Republican Party. And for the first seven months of this Congress, they have controlled everything. And what you will find from the far left of the Democratic Party is a group of people pushing for policy reforms, but they don't use terrorist tactics. Uh, they don't try to hold the, the Democratic Party hostage to their wishes. They use reason, data, evidence, advocacy, persuasion to try to move the conversation. But as we saw in the last Congress, Democrats were incredibly united around significant significant uh, legislation of a whole host of issues. But yet on the other side, I have no idea what's going to happen because this fringe right group 
has basically held Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, hostage. There was some resistance from a group of moderates on the Republican Party right before we went into recess, and they refused to pass uh, one of the 12 appropriation subcommittee bills on agriculture because of this culture war, unnecessary fringe right demand. And so the House Republicans have passed one of 12 subcommittee appropriations bills in in the House, and the Senate has passed all 12 of theirs. And the total appropriations bill needs to be passed by September 30th if there's not a continuing resolution. And so now what we're left with is there's no hope of that happening. So these fringe right Republicans are trying to hold hostage the continuing resolution to keep the government open. And they have shown no indication. Uh, In fact, many have said they don't care if there's a government shutdown. It is reckless. It is uh, the excessive hostage taking by people who are out of step with the American public. And it's incredibly dangerous to the functioning of our government. Well, Ronald Reagan used to say government is the problem, but it only seems to be a problem when Republicans are running it. Congressman, I would love to keep dragging the GOP with you all day, but we are almost at the end of our time. In the couple seconds we have left, let our listeners know where they can find you and how they can help you out in your fight to improve our gun laws. Well, thanks, Max. Uh, You can reach us uh, goldman.house.gov on Twitter. I'm at at Rep. Dan Goldman and Daniel at at Daniel S. Goldman. We also have Instagram pages and social media, and, and we love hearing from people who care about these issues. And what I would urge your listeners is not only to reach out to us, but to reach out to those on the other side who seem unwilling to engage on these critical issues that uh, their government should be addressing. Uh, Letters and calls can make a difference. And uh, people, in order to, to save our children and to save our democracy, should really be thinking about doing just a little bit more engagement. And even though it's tempting to put your head under the pillow and just want to erase everything that's going on, the more that we all take a step forward and do a little bit more, the more that we are promoting democracy in this country, and that will ultimately protect and save our democracy. Ending on a positive note. Thank you so much, Congressman. I I hope you'll come back and give us an update on how things are going. Thanks so much for having me, Max. Great to have this really uh, meaty conversation. Thanks. Such a pleasure to chat with my guest, New York Congressman Dan Goldman. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Sirius XM Progress. Stick around. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. 
Welcome back, folks. You're listening to Tell Me Everything with John Fugelsang, and I'm Max Burns, sitting in for John this week. There is a ton going on in Congress right now, even though Capitol Hill is still technically out in their districts for the August recess. And there is one guy who I like to turn to when I want to know what's really happening in the hallowed halls, Virginia Congressman Don Beyer. Congressman Beyer represents Virginia's 8th Congressional District, a position he's held since 2015. And to think I can still remember when Beyer was running in an extremely crowded Democratic primary. Now, Beyer is one of the most trusted voices, not just in the House Democratic Caucus, but on the Hill. And he's been kind enough to take some time out of his schedule to talk to us about a whole bunch of topics. Congressman, it's a real pleasure to have you with us on the show. Max, thank you very much. And thanks for the the uh, over-the-top introduction, which which I, I, <laughs> I love, but think is probably too much. <laughs> I think you've, you've certainly earned it. Now, a lot of folks may not know this, but you've become a leading voice on AI, artificial intelligence. You're the vice chair of the AI caucus. You're part of Speaker McCarthy's working group on AI. And we've certainly seen that as cool and interesting as AI is, it poses a lot of challenges when it comes to programming bias, accuracy, even jobs. What is Congress doing to ensure that we're developing AI with an eye towards safety, first off? But Max, that's a really important question, especially in the context of how um, flat-footed we were caught by social media. You know, social media has been around in, in, you know, in, in robust terms about 23 years, and in those 23 years, we've done virtually nothing to rein in the abuses. In fact, I think the only meaningful piece of legislation we did was to give them immunity from from lawsuits, you know, moving in the wrong direction. So we're trying not to to go down that same mistaken path again. And that's why we have these various focus groups and subcommittees and caucuses and the like. So, you know, I I tend to fall on the, the very optimistic side of the AI community. I'm so excited about what is doing for healthcare, what is doing for science. Seems like every day there's something new that AI is giving us in terms of being able to manage our lives, our health, uh, even manage management. Um, you know, I don't want to go through all the different examples, but just pick one. You know, a couple of years ago, it took um, a couple of years to figure out the folding of a single protein, and with this. AI program called AlphaFold, they were able to fold every, you know, determine the folding of every known protein uh, on the planet. What that will mean for medicine, for healthcare, for, um, you know, better living through chemistry is going to be just remarkable. But to your question, the whole idea of what's Congress's responsibility, I think it's to make sure that we put guardrails in place for the downsides whether they are intended downsides like fraud and criminal abuse or the unintended downsides like bias or, as you said, uh, hallucination, you know, untrue facts. And and the most obvious of all is what are we going to do with the people who are displaced, whose jobs are eliminated by AI? And so that that's what we're struggling with, to come up with a, a series of steps that will move, you know, create meaningful guidelines on the downside, the risks of AI. And that to me, I think is the really interesting thing. We saw just a couple of weeks ago, West Virginia University is ending its entire global languages program. In part, they said, because so many companies are now using AI for low level translation, we've seen companies that are eliminating programming uh, just in Fast Company today. We saw a report that some of the same tech companies 
that were pushing people into very expensive coding boot camps are now telling those same applicants that they're using AI for those jobs. Are you getting a sense that companies care about these disruptions or are they just so busy innovating that they're not thinking about those long-term challenges? Both, but I think the bias is heavily towards uh, implementing the new AI pieces, possibilities. Uh, I, I had to speak at a little conference a couple of weeks ago, and most of the attendees were actually the the AI governance professionals in major companies, you know, Target and FedEx and and folks like that, even even in defense contractors, you know, Northrop Grumman. Um, so the companies are paying attention to the governance side of it, you know, ethics and and risks, um, but let's be you know, realistic. They're also really excited about how they can put AI to use to be more profitable and more efficient and effective. Um, yeah, that, that's always going to be the trend, I think, which is why Congress, you know, the public servants have the responsibility to figure out what do we do about those risks? I think that's really interesting. The government or the governance aspect is really not discussed at all in the broader media. And it feels like it should be one of these areas for bipartisan engagement especially, as you note, since Congress now, I think, more or less acknowledges it didn't tackle social media regulation early enough. Uh, do you find Republicans are actually engaging with you on this stuff in a real and substantive way? I do. You know, I, I've said many uh, critical things about Kevin McCarthy and his leadership over the years, but I'm grateful that he's pulled together uh, an informal group of Democrats and Republicans just to talk about this and work on it. You know, this shouldn't be and doesn't need to be um, partisan at all. Yeah, that we're not talking abortion or guns or any of that stuff. Um, we're, you know, we're talking about the, the future of a society that is going to be very different because uh, of artificial intelligence. Uh, on, on the whole notion of, of governance, too, I, I met with a fascinating firm recently uh, called Trustable AI. Small firm right now, but their whole idea is to help um, all these companies that are eagerly trying to put AI to use figure out uh, how to deal with the governance itself, how to make sure that it's ethical. Um, and Max, as you probably know, the, the gold standard internationally right now are the, the NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology Guidelines. Uh, NIST is you know, our fundamental standard setter for America and therefore for the world uh, in Gaithersburg, Maryland. And they've developed this really great set of standards, which if everybody would abide by, many of the risks would go away. So what, one of the interesting ideas is, um, since we probably can't, especially now, like, okay, mandate that for all AI across the globe, um, at least perhaps mandate it for government contractors, people that are doing business with the taxpayer dollars. That's where we have some leverage, and that's where we may get a lot of experience about how to go forward from there. And that that is a great point. NIST also earlier this year, I think in January, released that AI risk management framework that's gotten a lot of pickup, I think, surprisingly from companies many people didn't think would, would do that. If you're just tuning in, I'm talking with Congressman Don Beyer about artificial intelligence and the role of Congress in mediating what's already proving to be both a revolutionary and a disruptive new technology. Now, it seems like we're almost in a race with ourselves to create even more advanced AI tools. But now there are coming to be real questions about copyright in the age of AI. And the last time Congress really tackled copyright law was in the 1990s. Is it time to take another look at intellectual property now that so many of these places like Midjourney are absorbing in the art of artists who are now claiming they're essentially being stolen from? 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the, the, the first glance is something called watermarking, which is just really establishing the identity of your particular piece of work. But it goes much deeper than that. You know, I, I talked to folks like Charlie Rifkin, who's head of the Motion Picture Association uh, of America. And those guys are meaningfully terrified. What happens when basically anything is produced on film or, or video um, through artificial intelligence can have no intellectual property protection at all. This is at the heart of the Hollywood strike. You have all those uh, actors whose images may once again be used uh, for time eternal um, without them getting paid for it. Or the writers who uh, could not easily be replaced. The creativity won't be there, but but you know you can imagine GPT-4, GPT-5 coming up with some pretty good scripts for uh, the, the next series on Netflix. You know, it's this notion of not just privacy, which is incredibly important, but also ownership of our creative arts is something we're going to have to struggle with, and we should do it right away. Now, are there areas of AI that, that you're seeing and in conversations you're having that are evolving that aren't being talked about? I know the focus is very much on chat GPT and how it's running Vivek Ramaswamy's campaign, according to Chris Christie, or <laughs> mid-journey and how it's bringing in people's art. But as you mentioned, protein folding at industrial purposes don't get as much conversation in the press. Yeah, and and they are very exciting. I mean, if I was the biologist or the biochemist who was looking forward to spending the rest of my career folding proteins, now that's all been done. I'm going to have to find something else to do. Uh, so it moves us up the the intellectual and the sophisticated type of work that we're going to be able to do. Uh, but the, it's interesting, Max, one of the cool ideas I've heard recently is a number of firms are working on what they call the taxonomy of risks, is looking at AI, case by case, what's the downside? Uh, we mentioned a couple of them earlier. We have a bill, Ted Lieu, Ken Buck, and I, bipartisan bill to prohibit the use of artificial intelligence in the nuclear launch decisions. That is fascinating. And this is something that's already being being looked into. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And the, the biggest, maybe not the most existential, but the biggest and most obvious is job elimination. You know, and you can, that throughout history, every time there's been a technological breakthrough, there's been job elimination, more, but more yeah. job creation. Um, but will that be true with AI? And how much pain do we go through as we adapt? And that, that does seem to be one of the big questions. I think people were surprised at the pace this has evolved. AI was predicted to replace a lot of low-skilled work, but we're seeing it go into the medical profession, into, into science, into legal work into language translation. And I'm not sure that we've really prepared for the kind of disruption that's going to be. I mean, these are people who have invested heavily in an education that now is very difficult to find work in. You're absolutely right. It's upside down from what we expected. And yet the so-called low-skill work, you're taking care of people, taking care of children, taking care of the elderly. Um, the AI can't do that. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're moving to this weird place where in a society that needs a great deal of caring, we underpay our caretakers. And we have prepared a whole generation for doing you know, high-level math and computer science that may not be needed. Is it there, deeply there is a lot of disruption going on, which may be Absolutely. why there's so much anxiety out there in the world. Yeah, no doubt. 
Now, jumping to a topic I know you love, uh, talking about Donald Trump, uh, a lot of Democrats sort of make dunking on Trump their side hustle. But I appreciate you actually go at Trump from a policy perspective, most recently on what you call his idiotic and illegal plan to impose a universal 10 percent tariff on all imports to the country. Tell our audience why that set you off so much. Well, first of all, Donald Trump is excellent at eliminating all nuance. And he takes something that's extraordinarily complicated and interactive, like international trade. And in the growth it's given, the, the number of people has lifted out of poverty over the last 70 years and said, oh, look, we, we, we've lost manufacturing jobs in some places. Let's do a crazy 10% tariff. And it's it's wildly irresponsible. It, it's, um, you know, of, of a piece of him saying, you know, let, let's ban all Muslims or let's shoot anybody coming across the border. Um, it would be, you know, we've just come off the worst inflationary period since the, the late 70s. And a 10% tariff would be an instant 10% inflation on everybody and would be much worse than that because of the, the ripple effects through the supply chain. Also, it would slow economic growth in our country and everywhere else in the world. And the reason that the world is so much wealthier now than it was in 1950 is because of international trade. Yes, we need to do it sensibly. We need to do fair trade and smart trade. But 10% uh, tariffs is like um, taking an axe to a pretty good international system. And that really is, I think, Trump in a nutshell is taking an axe to the international system. And on the political side, we just saw a poll come out in Virginia that shows Donald Trump dominating the Republican primary. I think no surprise to anyone. But Glenn Youngkin also at 9%, which I interpret as a terrible poll for him. It's showing that Republicans, even in his own state, don't seem that interested in what he's been unable to achieve. But I'm curious what you make of Glenn Youngkin's nascent presidential ambitions and also the way that he's essentially tried to frame himself as an adult in the room while governing as a very extreme MAGA Republican. Yeah, I, I have met the governor a number of times. He's he's never asked me for any advice, um, which is <laughs> normal. Um, but <laughs> I, I'm dying to say, you know, governor, just govern from the middle. You, know, you can be a conservative Republican and do wonderful things and be popular. And yet he continues to drift into culture war stuff. You know, I think it was even the Richmond Times dispatched in an editorial the other day saying, look, prohibiting which pronouns children can use, fights over which bathrooms they can have, snitch lines for, for parents to go after teachers and the like, do nothing to strengthen the education system for our children. Um, we need to be, you know, bucking up this whole commitment to giving our children a beautiful education rather than talking what books they can ban. And... So sadly, the governor has governed as if he were trying to appeal to the Trump uh, base uh, for future political gain rather than trying to lead Virginia in a really good place. And uh, and that's sad and, and a waste of an incredible opportunity uh, to be governor of Virginia. And that, that really is a shame because under Democrats, Virginia was ranked the number one state to do business. And that is not the case anymore. It seems like so much of this has become a a play to get on Fox News and not to do what's right for Virginians, exemplified, I think, in Youngkin's decision to push forward on these very strict abortion bans, despite large majorities of Virginians saying they don't want that. Yeah, we, you know, we're we're the southernmost state that hasn't 
put in abortion bans, really strict abortion yeah. bans, and and it's completely counter to the the Virginia way. Uh, and it has been for a long, long time. You, you've seen with a lot of Republican governors, you know, Bob McDonald, George Allen, Jim Gilmore, that never went there because that's not where the Virginia people are. Uh, yeah. The last one to really run on this was Marshall Coleman, 1989. I know abortion, even in the case of rape and incest. And that's a major reason why he lost the election to Doug Waller. Yeah. And it, it, apparently Republicans have not learned their lesson. Now, we are almost out of time, but I want to get your thoughts on the growing consensus among conservative and liberal legal experts that the 14th Amendment's disqualification clause, Section 3, bars Donald Trump from the ballot next year. Do you agree or is that just wishful thinking? I think it's more wishful thinking. I am not a lawyer or a constitutional scholar like like my friend Jamie Raskin. Um, I appreciate that the constitutional scholars can make that case. But let's think about how that plays out. Um, someone sues uh, Donald Trump if they have standing in some court or another to say he can't be on the ballot because of the 14th Amendment. And it would go to the Supreme Court right away. I can't imagine that this Supreme Court would ever rule that Donald Trump couldn't run for office again. That would that would be a miracle, I think. So it's, it's an interesting argument, but I don't think it has any oh, texture in real life. Well, it is it is a sad statement. I think that we're discussing this at all. I mean, it is it really shows how far we've come down. Congressman, thank you so much for taking some of your time to talk with us here. Uh, let our audience know where they can find you and learn more about this really fascinating work you're doing on the Hill. Yeah, Max, uh, we, we tweeted at, at, at Rep Don Beyer and uh, on the, the it's a Rep Don Beyer is the, the Gmail or the uh, the website. And, and please look, we've got an enormous amount of great ideas that we're working on. You know, things happen very slowly in Congress, and you often have to work on them for years at a time before they pass. But when they do, they can affect everybody in the country and often many people on the planet. So try to follow all the different ideas that we're working on. Um, and give us your ideas too, please. And we wish you the absolute best in this. It is a critical fight. You've been listening to my guest, Congressman Don Beyer from Virginia's 8th District. You're listening to Sirius XM Progress. Thank you.